I don't know if you're like me, uh, but as the holidays approach, you know, I get a little more thin-skinned. It's like I'm just kind of nervous all the time, just frazzled. And so um, I, I'm not as compassionate over the holidays typically as I would like to be. I actually get less compassionate. I get more judgmental. I make <laughs> more snap decisions about what people are like, um, which is wrong. But um, we can make decisions based on first impressions, by the way a person talks, by the way they dress, by the way they move. And then later, very often, we find out that we're wrong, right? All of us have had this experience. But then we keep doing it. And this can mess us up in relationships that are personal, relationships at work, relationships at school. I mean, we just keep doing it over and over again. So I want you to think really quick about someone that you have judged quickly and then had to reverse that decision later on. Anybody else like me where you've had that happen? Okay. For me, one of those people is John Swanger. Um, a lot of you know John Swanger. He's a good friend of mine, but he didn't start out that way. As a matter of fact, if I look back, if I would have met John Swanger when I was 19 and he was 19, we would have not been friends, maybe even enemies. Because I had just become uh, a believer. I was a pretty straight arrow before I became a believer. I didn't do a lot of things from the outside that looked like I needed to change. But I think I was aware of the darkness in my heart enough that I needed a savior. But, um, but I was a pretty good kid, you know, 19, going to college. And uh, John, at 19, was robbing banks, about ready to go into the federal penitentiary. So, can you imagine if we had met at 19? We met sometime in our 40s, actually, for the first time, and I didn't like him. Uh, you know, cowboy hat, boots, I mean, he was walking around swaggering like he was cool, and um, I just thought, I don't like this guy. He seems arrogant and, um, you know, he's got, uh, I don't know what the deal was, but he just had this air about him, this confidence, I guess, that I didn't like. And then lo and behold, years later, uh, he and I become the best of friends. He ends up um, being our landlord for Scum for several years and then plants what became Scum of the Earth in Seattle. He and his wife, Raylene, are two of our dearest friends for Mary and I. So there have been more than a few people that I've been wrong about based on first impressions. And if we go to our scripture reading today, we're going to encounter someone who has been judged by the ages based on a first impression that I think actually does not serve her well, and that is Bathsheba one of the grandmothers of Jesus. The affair that David the king had with Bathsheba has become the stuff of legends. We know that she was beautiful. In fact, the first time we see her, she is bathing. Maybe that's why they call her Bathsheba. I don't know. And the stuff that follows is uh, not only recorded history, but it's also been the subject of some not-so-great movies 
Just talk to Kenny Miles. He'll let you know. Richard Gere, Alice Kriege in the 80s, and then I think before that in the 50s, Gregory Peck and Susan Hayward. Um, but still, the problem is, is that Bathsheba is forced to play this role of either the uh, temptress or the beautiful victim, depending on who's writing the story. The truth of the matter is, when you take a closer look at Bathsheba, there's a whole lot more to her than meets the eye. Please forgive the pun. So in Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus' stepfather, Joseph, Jesus' legal father, is through David's line, the King David's line, and through his son Solomon. Now, in Luke chapter 3, if you look, there's a genealogy there too, and most Bible scholars believe that's the line that comes through Mary. Now, the, in Greek, there was no word for son-in-law, uh, so they just said they thought he was the son of Heli, H-E-L-I, the son-in-law of Heli, Joseph was. And we believe this line goes through Mary. Well, interesting thing. You go back to King David through that line, and it's all through, through a child that King David had with Bathsheba. So, so Bathsheba becomes Jesus' grandmother's on both sides. And so we're going to go to this story. It's a lot of Bible reading today. I think um, it's one of the more salacious stories in the Bible, so I don't think we'll have any trouble keeping your attention focused on what we talk about today. So let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab, Joab was David's general, out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. So you're asking yourself, wait a minute, this story is starting out. David's not supposed to be in Jerusalem, but he's there. Warning bells go off if you're a reader already. Verse 2. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. Now, she wasn't on the roof. He was on the roof. She was probably down in her house, maybe in a courtyard that's enclosed that you couldn't see from if you were in the regular houses because the king's house was higher than everybody else's house. He could look down into it or down onto it, wherever she was. And I'm thinking that he wasn't supposed to be there Bathsheba's husband was in the military. He was a soldier, one of David's mighty men. So she probably figured there was nobody in the palace like the king anyway. And she's purifying herself, which means that she has reached the end of her menstrual cycle. 
Seven days after she stops bleeding, then she is going through a ritual purification as prescribed in Leviticus. She's washing herself with water to purify herself ritually. This is important. We're going to be told this in just a second. The reason it's important is because we know if she just got done having her period, she's not pregnant by her husband who was off to war. Let's keep reading. The woman was very beautiful. Go back one. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So what we find out right here in this sentence is that her husband is a foreigner, Uriah. He's a Hittite. He's not a Jew. He's converted to Judaism. He's got great respect for the Jewish people. He's got a great love for Jehovah their God. And he's converted. We also know from other places in the Bible that Uriah has become one of David's most loyal, trusted soldiers, a mighty man in his own right. But we also find out that Bathsheba is a daughter of Eliam. Now, Eliam is one of David's mighty men. He's been in mighty man for a long time. And truthfully, what this tells you is, is that Bathsheba's probably old enough to be David's daughter. There's got to be at least a 20-year span between these people, in my opinion. Now, if you keep looking farther, you'll find out that even her grandfather is one of David's most trusted royal advisors. So she comes from a pretty good line of people who have been very, very good to David. Now, the fact that David doesn't recognize her is not so hard to believe. Why? Because he's probably never seen her except without a lot of clothing on. In those days, women wore very modest clothing. They were covered from head to foot. And so he's seeing a whole lot more of Bathsheba than he ever saw before. The next verse says, Then David sent messengers to get her. Now the force of the Hebrew word is to seize her. Lekah. It is um, one of those words that means you, you fetch something. You lay hold of something. You acquire something. You snatch something. You take it away. It's not just an easy word. It's a forceful word. And the Bible tells us that she came to him and he slept with her. He slept with her. I want you to notice as we go through this, that nothing negative is ever said of Bathsheba. If anybody is a victim, 
In the women we've discussed so far, this Advent series and this genealogy of Jesus, it would be Bathsheba. The movies that portray her as, you know, a woman who was bathing naked on her roof, knowing full well the king is there, looking over her shoulder to make sure he's watching, I don't find any basis in Scripture for that at all. And almost every movie wants to do that to Bathsheba. And the Bible says, for she had purified herself from her uncleanness. So we know where she is in her menstrual cycle, which is, I mean, this is crazy. I mean, can you believe how detailed the Bible gets here? David is one of the Bible's heroes. From the time he was a wee lad and he had to fight Goliath, we love David. He's awesome. He fights the giants. He kills the giants. He protects the sheep against the wolf and the bear. And, uh, you know, he leads Israel's armies to glory. He writes the Psalms. He's, he's a musician. You know, he's, he's like the Renaissance man of, you know, thousands of years past this. He does it all. We like David. And the Bible is about to lay him bare. Like, just flay him open. The darkness in his life for the whole world and history to see. Then the Bible says she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. That's all she gets. Those are the lines for this whole episode. In Hebrew, it's only two words. Hollywood and the church have judged Bathsheba unfairly. And Scripture is ruthless about pointing blame where blame is due. She is trying to fulfill the law of Moses, and David is breaking the law of Moses. David is a predator. And she is the prey. And now David is going to pile onto his mistakes. We have five verses on David's sexual sin with Bathsheba, but there are going to be 20 verses on his sin of betraying a loyal soldier. Let's go on. So David sent this word to Joab, his general. Send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house. Wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. Maybe a bottle of wine, a couple glasses. Who knows? But Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. Now, why would David call for Uriah and send him home with a gift? I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure it out, does it? 
He wants Uriah to go home and sleep with his wife. And then when the kid is born, everybody thinks it's Uriah's kid. The next verse says, When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked Uriah, Haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in open fields. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. You see, we know that the Ark of the Covenant is with the armies there. This is not just any war. This is a holy war. They sent the Ark of the Covenant, that thing from Indiana Jones, right? With the army. Because this isn't just any old war. And before these kind of campaigns, soldiers would take a vow that they wouldn't do certain things like sleep with their wives until they had completed the task assigned to them by the Lord. So Uriah is being a great soldier. If you're from a military family or if you're married or if you know a military person, you understand this kind of devotion. It is to be respected. So Uriah sleeps in the barracks or whatever. And this requires David to take more drastic measures. Then David said to him, the scripture goes on, stay here one more day and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. Uriah is more righteous drunk than David is sober. And this is where it just gets despicable. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, Put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is the fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Uriah is carrying his own death warrant. I mean, like, this is the stuff movie scripts are made out of. And he dies on the battlefield. Let's keep going. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. These paintings, by the way, are, are all from paintings about the story. I didn't have to search 
very hard. She mourned for him. You've got to feel sorry for Bathsheba. She's been taken advantage of by the most powerful man in her world. And now her husband is dead. Now the standard period of mourning back in those days was seven days for a husband. It would take someone like a Moses for the whole nation of Israel to mourn for 30 days. But seven days was normal. I mean, there were no embalming techniques like we have now. They put you in the ground fairly quickly. And then there was the problem with widows being able to support themselves. So the Bible is very gracious in allowing them to remarry seven days after their husbands had died. And of course, this is what happened with Bathsheba. After the time of mourning was over, the scripture goes on, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Yeah, no kidding. Think about Bathsheba for a minute now. She's gone from being the one and only wife of what appears to be a very good man. And now, she's in a harem of wives and concubines. She's one of many. Yeah, she's in a palace, but I think most women I know would pick the love of one man in a humble house over being one of many in a palace. On to chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Now, Nathan is a prophet. You guys know prophets? They're kind of no-nonsense people. They um, see things black and white, right and wrong, good and bad. Um, they're wonderful to have around if you're doing well. If you're not doing so well spiritually, sometimes they're a pain. Uh, but I guess the pain that you need to let you know that something is wrong. And so Nathan comes to David. And the interesting thing is, is the prophets, they don't care about your position. They're more concerned about pleasing God. So you could be the king, it doesn't matter. They're going to let you have it right between the eyes. And that's what Nathan does. When he came to him, to King David, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought, and he raised it. It grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Remember, David was a shepherd. Remember this. 
David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. So David is saying, I'd like to kill this guy. But I know what the law says. The law says he's got to pay four times as much as he took. But man, this kind of despicable character needs to die. And then Nathan says some of the most famous words in the entire Bible. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. You are the man. I'm going to read you God's verdict. It's not going to be up on the slides. Just that picture will be. Kind of a storyboard. Remind you of what God is about to say concerning what David has done. God is not happy. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. David, if you were dissatisfied with what I had done for you, all you had to do was ask me, and I love you so much, I would have given it to you. And the prophet goes on. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. You killed him with the sword of the Amorites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. This plays out. If you read the rest of David's story, you see this happening in a rebellion that occurs when his son tries to take power. It happens just the way the prophet said it was going to happen. David tried to do it in secret, but God did it before the whole nation. He sins, he tries to cover it up, and God says no more. David is a worshiping kind of a guy. He worshiped God like no one else. Danced before the Lord, sang before the Lord. And for a while he began worshiping 
the woman next door, or his own lusts and desires. The question we are waiting to find out, what's going to happen? What's David going to do? Who's he going to worship now? What's his next move? Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die because he deserved to die. But because by doing this you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. Now, this is one of those verses that, you know, you don't think about much until you have to study it. You're going, but because by doing this you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. Who knew about this? Did the Amorites do, know about this? The Moabites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Cellulites, the Termites? I mean, come on. Who knew about this? Nobody knew about this. Who are the enemies that the Lord is talking about? You know, this is one of those deals where if you go to Ephesians 3 and you read that chapter, you realize that we play our lives out as individuals and as a church before an audience, a spiritual audience of angels and demons who are intent on looking into salvation history to see what God's going to do with the human race. And I think that what Nathan is saying is you have brought dishonor to the name of God by giving the demons a chance to show utter contempt for what it is God is trying to do on the earth. Let's go on. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had borne to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and went into his house and spent the nights lying on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. So David goes into prayer and fasting mode. You see, David knows the heart of God. He understands that God is merciful, that God is good, that God is love. And he's hoping against hope that maybe if he humbles himself by prayer and fasting, that maybe God will change his mind and spare the life of his son. He doesn't want his son to die for his sins because the child is innocent. Let's think about Bathsheba for a minute. She's gone through all this already, and now she's holding her firstborn son in her arms, watching him die. And none of this has been her fault. Back to the scriptures. On the seventh day, the child died. 
David's servants were afraid to tell him the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was still living, we spoke to David, but he would not listen to us. How can we tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. They're saying, if he acts like this while the kid is alive, now that he's dead, he might do something really drastic. David noticed that his servants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He went into the house of the Lord and worshipped with his heart breaking. For his child had died. He had made a royal mess of his life, Bathsheba's life, Uriah's life, and the life of an innocent newborn. And he didn't know where else to go, so he goes and he worships before the Lord. This is the mark of a man who's in love with God. When you're a father and you discipline your, ch your children and they begin to weep, it's time to hold them. It's time for the anger to go away. Wrap them in your arms. Let them know you still care. That's what the Lord does right here for David. Then he went to his own house, and at his request they served him food, and he ate. His servants asked him, Why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. He answered, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live, but now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. That's a reunion that I would love to have been able to see. There's a heavenly reunion of David and his unborn son, or his newborn son who was killed because of his own sin. That had to be a sight to behold. And then verse 24, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and he lay with her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him, and because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah, which means... Jehovah loves the one Jehovah loves. Does that sound to you like God is still holding something against David? Because it doesn't sound like that to me. It sounds like the opposite. This was a marriage that was not supposed to have happened. And yet, 
God crowned it with his blessing. Why? Perhaps to teach us that there is life, not just life, but abundant life, after adultery, after divorce, after the death of a spouse, after your world's been torn apart, that if we surrender our lives to God, even in the middle of our pain, if we worship God with tears in our eyes, as one of my friends used to say, sitting on his lap but pounding with our fists on his chest, that God gives abundant life. Now here's the rest of the story. David has three other children with Bathsheba. One of them is Nathan, through whom the line of Mary is traced in Luke chapter 3. Nathan. Bathsheba and David named their other son Nathan. I mean, Nathan's the prophet who confronted David. And yet, he honors him by naming a son after him. And i got to tell you something. If you, in all righteousness and humility, go to a friend who is straying away from God, and you're prophetic and you say, you should not be doing this thing, your friend is not going to like you. But he or she will respect you. And maybe they'll name their children after you or one of their children after you down the road. The man who confronted David in sin becomes so highly regarded by them that they name one of their children after him. Now, I'm going to Fast forward 20 years in this story. Because um, things happen. So just listen, go to the next slide, and just listen as I read. There'll be more than what's up there, but I'll end with that. When David... The king was old and well advanced in years. He could not keep warm even when they put covers over him. Now Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, one of David's sons by another wife, put himself forward and said, I will be king. So he got chariots and horses ready with 50 men to run ahead of him. His father had never interfered with him by asking, why do you behave as you do? Then Nathan the prophet asked Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king without our Lord David's knowing it? Now then, let me advise you how you can save your life and the life of your son Solomon. Go in to King David and say to him, My lord the king, did you not swear to me, your servant, Surely Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit upon my throne? Why then has Adonijah become king? 
And while you are still there talking to the king, I will come in and confirm what you have said. So Bathsheba went to see the aged king in his room. Bathsheba bowed low and knelt before the king. What is it you want? The king asked. She said to him, My lord, you yourself swore to me, your servant, by the Lord your God, Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne. But now Adonijah has become king, and you, my lord the king, do not know about it. He has sacrificed great numbers of cattle, fattened calves, and sheep, and has invited all the king's sons, Abiathar the priest, and Joab the commander of the army. But he has not invited Solomon your servant. My lord the king, the eyes of all Israel are upon you to learn from you who will sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise, as soon as my lord the king is laid to rest with his fathers, I and my son Solomon will be treated as criminals. Now that's a euphemism. She's going to get executed as will Solomon. That's the way it was done back then. Any other pretenders to the throne were cut off all over the ancient Near East. While she was still speaking with the king, Nathan the prophet arrived, and they told the king, Nathan the prophet is here. So he went before the king and bowed with his face to the ground. Nathan said, Have you, my lord, the king, declared that Adonijah shall be king after you, and that he will sit on your throne? Today he has gone down and sacrificed great numbers of cattle, fattened calves and sheep. He has invited all the king's sons, the commanders of the army, and Abiathar the priest. Right now they are eating and drinking with him and saying, Long live King Adonijah! But me, your servant... And Zadok the priest, and Benaniah son of Jehoiada, and your servant Solomon, he did not invite. Is this something my lord the king has done without letting his servants know who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? Now we go up here. No, back there. Then King David said, call in Bathsheba. So she came into the king's presence and stood before him. You know, Bathsheba has always been able to stir up the king. At first physically, but now spiritually. And for the good. The king then took an oath. As surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble, I will surely carry out today what I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne in my place. And then the Bible says that she bows low before David and kneeling before him says, May my Lord King David live forever, which of course isn't going to happen. She knows it. Long story, right? Great story. So I want to look at um, the two characters of David and Bathsheba. This is a painting by Mark Chagall of David and Bathsheba. You can probably see them both in it. It's one of my favorites.
Let's think about Bathsheba for a second. When the life that we know is destroyed by the evil intents of others, God is still able to pick up the pieces and build something glorious. Bathsheba's struggle is a real one. She is the only beloved wife of what appears to be a good man. She is violated by the wealthiest and most powerful man in her world. She grieves the death of her husband and then is thrust into a harem, finally suffering the death of her infant firstborn son. And one can only wonder how difficult it must have been for her to forgive King David. Or even more, how she could build a new life. And yet she finds favor with King David. And God sees to it that she becomes, not just once but twice, a well-known ancestor of the Savior of the world. Let's not judge Bathsheba too quickly. Because all the great things inside of her that came out at the end, her fearlessness, her assessment of the situation, her ability to go in and talk to the king boldly on behalf of her life and her kids' lives, that was all there before. She was a descendant of mighty warriors. She was a mighty warrior herself. And if we judge her on first impressions, we never see the true character of Bathsheba. Let us not do that anymore to anybody else. There's people that you have met, that you have written off, that I have written off, that God has glorious things planned for. If we could only see with his eyes and in his timing. She starts out a victim. She winds up victorious. She loses a child, but she gains children. And her son is promised the throne. In the years that follow, Bathsheba finds her voice. If you keep reading in the reign of Solomon the king, she actually has quite a bit to do with the government of the country. I mean, she is a force to be reckoned with. She's the queen mother. She's the dowager queen. Here's the testimony that we learn from Bathsheba that what was done to me does not define me. What was done to you does not define you. What God does is what defines you and defines me. And God's offer is this. Bring what's been done to you, all the bad things, to Jesus. You're the victim, but he is the victor. And he is God. He can turn anything bad into something good. That's a miracle. That's what he does. I would hope that your response today, if you're in a position like Bathsheba was in, 
will be to place your hope in the redemption of Jesus, the redemption of Jesus, that Jesus can redeem your life like we redeem coupons. You buy them. What happens when you have coupons? The the manufacturer buys them back from you, right? God buys back our troubles. He pays us for our troubles. He transforms us by a power that's only His, by His mercy and grace. If you're a victim like Bathsheba, that can be your response. Post your hope in the redemption of Jesus. But maybe you're not a victim. Maybe you're a victimizer because truthfully, sometimes we're both. Where was David's first mistake? He wasn't where he was supposed to have been, was he? Maybe you're not where you're supposed to be sometimes. Maybe you're in the wrong part of town. Maybe you're sitting in front of the computer when you should be asleep in your bed. Maybe you're stepping into a group of gossips at work when you should be at your desk Maybe you're judging people based on first impressions instead of uh, being their advocate. Where's the dangerous place for you? For David, it was being in Jerusalem when he should have been on the battlefield. Bathsheba suffers for David's sins as does David and the firstborn son. James, the apostle of Jesus, uh, says this much. James 1.13, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when? By his or her own evil desires. He or she is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Sin leads to death. Emotional death. Spiritual death, sometimes physical death. What do we learn from the life of David in this story? David's testimony is this, that what I have done does not define me. What you have done does not define you. What God does defines you. God's offer to you is this. Bring what you have done, the terrible, horrible, despicable, sinful, selfish, lustful things you have done to Jesus. You're the victimizer. All you got to bring to Jesus is crap. But he's asking for it. Bring it to Jesus. He will take it. 
And it's interesting that in this story, the son of David dies for David's sin. But it's not the last time that's going to happen. For hundreds of years later, the son of David, Jesus Christ, is going to die for David's sins and Bathsheba's sins and Uriah's sins and my sins and your sins. And we can place our hope in the redemption of Jesus. That's our response. What you've done and what was done to you, what you've done and what was done to you is a part of your story. Like it was David's story and Bathsheba's story. But what has been done to you and what you have done is nothing compared to who lives within you if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. The Apostle John says, You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. The Apostle Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us in Romans 8.31? I have told you these things so that you in me may have peace. In this world you'll have trouble, Jesus said. But take heart, I have overcome the world. God's redemption is at hand for each of us, whether we be the victim or the abuser. It's what we symbolically wait for during Advent, is the coming of the Christ child who is celebrated, who will take away our sin. He is the son of David who died for David's sins, who died for Bathsheba's sins, who died for Uriah's sins, who died for my sins and your sins. So let's remember as I light the Advent candles that this candle today is a candle of hope. It's hope that God, coming Messiah, will forgive us, will save us, restore us. We have hope in the second coming of Jesus, who was raised from the dead. We have hope that our Savior has come to save us from our sins, what we've done and what's been done to us. So let's prepare to welcome Christ into our hearts this Christmas. And I'll end with this psalm. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. For you, O Lord, if you kept a record of sins, oh, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Therefore you are feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. And all God's people said, Amen.